There is no question that something is here. Lurking. Somewhere in the darkened corners. But how will we ever find out what it is? We need to look. Always. And never stop. No matter what stands in our way. No matter what others may think. Explore the darkness. Shine light into it. Join the red strings and the silver threads. Everything is connected. Somehow. I am Mark L. Watson. This is Peer Beyond the Veil. explain something with me Mark if I start a tangent or I start just going off on a random thought they're not my thoughts they come in from whoever they are that are behind me okay um, I do have a lady to my left and I've got a guy to my right I've seen them um, they're not human but they come to me in human form um, so they fill my head with thoughts oh tell him about this and, I, and I'm saying this story and it's like, what the hell? You know, in my mind, I'm thinking, what the hell has this story got to do with the story that we're talking about? But then it all melds and just you think that aha moment of, oh, my God, now I know why I just went into that little rant of that story. Because it's they, um, you know, they, they know that I trust them so impeccably that they do give me these thoughts because... I don't get much out of it, obviously, but the person who I tell it to, and also with you being in a position where people listen to you, you know, you, you, that's where that synchronicity comes in, where you don't know that reason why I say a story. One of your million-odd readers or followers will get something out of it, and that's where the message was meant to go to. So I don't, I don't think about it too often because it would send me absolutely crazy if I did. What happens at the point of death? Our mortal existence stops, gradually or suddenly. But the line flattens and the beep stays constant. The heart stops, the functions cease, the darkness falls. But does it end there? Far from it. The death of the mortal body is only the beginning. The spirit ascends to its new plane of existence. Though some don't ascend, some stay, either through choice, remaining on the earth to watch or to guide or to protect, or by force, trapped here for any number of reasons. Some continue to walk amongst us, not even knowing they've passed. These ghosts have their ways of communicating as do the spirits who have moved over, though most of us are not able to pick up on such communications. We require the assistance of mediums, folk with the ability to bridge the gap, the spiritual chasm between the living and the dead. Such abilities tend to be hereditary, though many who possess them argue that they lay dormant in each of us, and so perhaps the inheritance of these abilities lays purely in the parent or grandparent being more encouraging of the tuning of such powers to their children. And so, we start to realise that when the machine flatlines and the curtain is pulled, we begin a new journey, a new awakening. When we leave the time and space with all the constraints that it possesses in this world, we move into a place where time and space are not relevant. A week, or a year, or an eon. Perhaps merely the same thing. No space. No time. Just a being. In 2001, psychic medium and author Linda Ray was in a coma for eight days and eventually died. She moved off to a place she regards as heaven, and was presented with the grand truths of not only her own existence and self, 
but that of everyone she could ever have influenced with her own actions. She was shown things, told things, and so realised things that would change the way she viewed reality. Then she returned to her living body to learn those lessons. Author of three books including My Ticket to Heaven, the story of her own near-death experience, renowned psychic medium Linda Ray joins me tonight to talk about how she's done way more than merely peer beyond the veil. I look at other psychic mediums and other people in the spiritual realm and they all have this defining moment where they say, the light bulb went on, it was like a calling, or, oh my God, I saw my first ghost when I was 28. I've never had that experience because I've always had it. Um, you know, people say to me, what's my first memory? My first memory, I was a baby in a nappy. I was in a um, oxygen tent in hospital. Um, you know, I can still remember my mum being outside this plastic talking to a doctor. She was very young, probably 25, which she would have been. Um, but I'm not alone on the bed. There was three other people that with me on the bed. Um, the doctor and my mum couldn't see them, but they were telling me things even back then. And it wasn't talking like now where our mouths move and you can make out the letters of the, the words, but it was an understanding of a like telepathic knowing that I had, um, which I've always had. I've always been tuned in. So one of the things that I have researched over the years is people who get sick get tuned in. So our health, you know, one, we want to say, yes, we want to live forever. We want to eat well. We want to drink heaps of water. You know, I've got to take my daily vitamins type things. But I found that when I get sick, I'm more tuned in. But I was a very sick child. I was in hospital till I was about two. They told my mum that, you know, this is the doctor's that I'd need heart, lung and kidney transplants before I was 10, which was a death sentence back in the 60s. You know, no one ever had transplants and survived. So have I ever had a transplant? No, because they've always healed me. Right now I've got a broken neck. C2 and C3 aren't connected. Um, I should be in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic, but um, I'm not because they're helping me. You know, I remember the car accident, I was 20. I was driving up to Nambour, which is up on the Sunshine Coast. I was doing 120 k's an hour on the highway when it's only a hundred zone, so shh. My back tire blew and I drove into a concrete bridge. The car swerved and I went head on at 120. Um, a, a car pulled up behind me with two guys in it. My car condensed to three foot. Um, I've seen photos of my car. This, the radiator was about three inches from the steering wheel. How did I survive that? And how did I get a broken neck? Because just prior to impact, this woman pushed me out of the car. And the reason why I broke my neck is because my head impacted the road and kinked it. Um, the two men that stopped, they actually said, oh my God, thank God you jumped out of your car just before you hit the bridge because you would have been dead. Um, I didn't jump out of the car, Dale. I was pushed out by this woman who's always been around me. And I'm thinking here, she's one of those three that I saw when I was a baby on the bed in hospital. The other injury that I haven't got anymore but in 2016, I was diagnosed with a brain tumour. How did that come around? I had tree loppers here cutting down a huge tree in my backyard. I was about 50 feet away um, watching and this log probably, oh my God, eight inches across. And it was about 20 foot, this, this branch, because that just shows you how big this tree is. It just came straight and hit me in the head. So something this round hit me here from 50 feet away. So it was destined. I call this destined things to occur. Not so much to give me a brain tumour, but to send me to the hospital where I had an MRI to find it. So then I healed it with their help. 
So I've had two MRIs and a CT scan that proved I had a um, 9 by 11 millimetre tumour. Then I started doing my own healing and asking for them to get rid of it. And I've had two MRIs where it's no longer there. I had no brain surgery. I've done nothing to um, like eating things to get rid of it. I've had no surgery. Where did it go? And those were the words the doctor said to me when he saw my first MRI. He said, where did it go? Because brain tumors can't dissolve under our skull and they don't get removed unless you have surgery. So they wanted me to find it so I would heal it. Do you ever feel being in touch with, you know, the realm beyond has negative effects on your life? <clears throat> Obviously it's not something you can turn off. So do you ever find that you, you want to turn it off or you're in touch with things when you don't want to be or in touch with things that, that you don't want to be? Does it have a negative, you know, impact at all? Do I get ass kicks? I get ass kicks every day, Mark. Um, if I'm doing a reading for someone and I get information that they don't want me to tell the person and then I do, um, I get I get physical kicks in the side where it's like someone kicking me. I get pushed over and I mean, I literally do, you know, I'll be sitting here and, oh, my God, and it's like them pushing me to um, say, no, 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 don't tell, tell them that. So, yeah, I get a lot of ass kicks if I um, stop being that 100% for the white and good of the universe. Um have I ever had thoughts to go to like the dark side that you see in um, Star Wars, etc.? Yes, we all have that, you know. You know, I've sat here some nights and thought, oh, wow, it would be cool if I could move things. And um, so I've practised and dabbled that a little bit. But every time I do, it's I get pulled back in. I get ass kicks. Um, the next day I'll get a speeding fine or something, you know, where they're saying, hey, um, because there's no coincidences. Everything happens for a reason. So I find that as long as I'm on the right path with them, because I call it them, capital T, H-E-M, as long as I do the good for them, they look after me. Here's your classic example. You know, you know, people associate bad energies with, I don't say the word here in my house, because um, I don't attract it. It sounds like Matt Damon dark energies you know people just think oh yeah she's got a matt damon um associated but that's just the ultimate end of it you know um but it, there's all these different layers of negativity before you get to those sort of beings um and as soon as you start on that path that's when like attracts like you know so all you've got to have is oh, i'm having a bad day then the next day it's oh my god i feel like i'm getting sick and then the next day, bingo, you are sick. Then the next day, you've also got some, um, because you can't move around because you're sick, that's when you're starting to get sad. The next day, now you're getting depressed. Then you've got all these other entities that can come in. So see how it's like a stepping stone to an ultimate um, thing. So you've got to break it down right at the beginning and say, as soon as you say these negative things to yourself, if you continually say negative things about yourself, your family, your friends, your neighbours, your workmates, as soon as we start all that negativity, we're creating a whole world of hurt for ourselves, mentally and physically. So I originally called it My Ticket to Heaven because I went to like a tour. Um, this lady behind me, um, who at that point, she hadn't had much interaction with me while I was growing up, um, but I was 35 when I died and she was behind me, like guiding me to all these different places and showing me what was there. And she kept saying to me, you've got to remember this part. You've got to tell people about this part. You, oh, I've got to take you to this part because it flows on from this part. So, you know, she showed me like heaven where it's just a euphoric city with fields, mountains, you know, just like any city here on our planet. 
but it was just tenfold, which I can go into later. Then she showed me um, out my life review. I had to go and do my own life review. And I was in that place for about six months, just looking at all my memories and having to judge myself why I did these things to people. So she showed me so many different aspects of heaven. She showed me how our life review happens, how we get a life contract, how we get lessons to be learned. Um, so then I'd find myself in this white, well, it's not a room because there was no roof, no floor, no walls. It's just a white space. Now this woman, that's Karina. She was my great, 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 great grandmother. Um, yeah, so she showed me the tunnel. Um, At what point did photo. you know it was her? Because she told me. So here's me standing in front of my box of all my memories and these guys. So I call them the big three. It was like rotations of energy going back and left and right at the same time, clockwise and anti-clockwise. They had no like human form, but all this energy was coming up to like the head. So it's all going up into this circular motion, but it was going both ways at the same time. They didn't talk to me like now with using a mouth. It was all telepathic. It was a knowing of what I had to do. So I had to go into that box and in that box, every memory of every action I'd ever done was in this, was in a bubble. So when I look into that box, it was like eternal inside the box. There was no walls or floor to the box, but there was millions upon millions of these little bubbles. So I picked one out and it was a memory of when I was about five. My grandmother had a white fluffy cat. And I used to sit in the front yard and pull its tail. And when I saw that memory, I remembered it because it's one of those memories I've forgotten. So as I pull the cat's tail on my physical body, I'm now feeling that pain of having my tail pulled. And it really hurt. So then I get this understanding from those three beings that I had to forgive myself for causing that pain within the cat. So it's that perspective of, you know, what we put out, we get back tenfold. If you look at Bible, um, you know, things come back to us tenfold in heaven. The more we hurt people, we have to live that hurt, but on that receiving end. If we're kind to somebody, we're then filled with that gratitude and that thanks and that compassion. Since I've woken up, I can't kill ants anymore because I now know the perspective of this tiny little ant with a huge shoe coming down and squashing it. So we feel that fear of what's about to happen and then we feel being squished. So I don't kill bugs. You know, I can't kill spiders. Um, I don't... I can't swear at other people anymore. Well, not much, you know what I mean? But I always have to say a prayer of thanks after it and say, thank you. I'm so, I'm, thank you for real, making me realize that I've done this action today. I, I forgive myself now because I know when I go to heaven and I'm facing that life review, it's going to be really shocking, you know, with, some, with the actions that some people do to people, it's horrible. You know, every time we swear at somebody, um, it's that feeling of like unworthiness, disrespect, broken trust, you know, and it goes, it goes into a ripple effect. So I say it like this to people. Imagine you wake up in the morning, you try and make a coffee and you spill coffee all over yourself. So now you're in a foul mood. Your partner wakes up and you go in there and you instantly attack them and you go mew, 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 because you're angry so now you're reflecting it onto that person as well. Note that I just said reflect. You reflect that anger of that emotion onto that other person who didn't deserve it. Then that person's now in an angry mood. They get into their car. They get stuck in traffic. So now they're abusing another person in the traffic. Then they go to work 
where something happens wrong at work because they're already in a foul mood, they take it out on their workmates. So when we go to heaven, this is the mind blow. Not only do I have to judge why I was angry with my partner for spilling that coffee on myself, then I've got to say you, I caused that ripple effect that went to the person in the traffic, the person at work, and every other ripple, because that person at work might have gone home and had a fight with their husband or whatever. So you live those ripple effects of what our emotions caused. So I say to people now, through this book, My Ticket to Heaven, which I've now called um, Heaven Exposed, I've rechanged the name of it, so it's Heaven Exposed, because it exposes us to how to be heaven on earth. Learn from my experience. Learn that I did do a lot of crap in my childhood um, and teenage and the 20s and 30s. You know, what stays in the what happened in the 80s for me stays in the 80s. Um, you know, I made a real lot of bad decisions in the 80s and did some really horrible things to people. Um, but I know that I've rectified those. You know, I've still got friends from the 80s who I've spoken to about and I said, oh, my God, I didn't realise I was hurting you so bad. You know, I didn't realise that, you know, that day you came to me for help and I just told you to go away because I was being selfish. Please forgive me for that. So I'm rectifying that now. So when I go home, that um, memory will be an easier process for me. And it's not because I feel a need, oh, yeah, this is just me, you know, living up to heaven standards. This is because I genuinely want to rectify. Whilst the concept of reincarnation has existed for many hundreds of years, dating back beyond the ancient Romans and Grecians, appearing in some form in nearly all of the world's religions, it's a relatively new theme in the modern Western world. It has become increasingly accepted as a possibility with many of the newer religions, such as modern neo-paganism and spiritism, accepting it as part of the faith. Data from a study carried out between 1999 and 2002, with a survey sample of 81 countries which represent roughly 85% of the world's population, showed that approximately 22% of Europeans and 20% of North Americans believed in life before birth and or life after death, which involved an actual physical rebirth. And whilst reincarnation is not specifically mentioned in the Christian Bible, and is not a tenet of Christian faith, the survey showed that roughly a quarter of all US Christians actually embraced the concept. But if the soul of a living being passes into a new mortal body after death, then how is it that they can exist in a place a realm, a dimension, where they can still communicate with us. What I see as a psychic medium, I still see ghosts who um, die and their soul stays on earth. Basically, it's for two reasons. One, they know they're dead. One, they, The second reason is they don't know they're dead. Um, that's why I wrote my book, Ghosts Exposed. It's, it's like a map outlining with stories why some stay earthbound, why others go to heaven. Then we look at reincarnation because people come to me and they say, oh, I want to talk to my grandmother. Is she in heaven? And if she is, how can she come through if she's already reincarnated? So I, I say it like this. You've got to remember there's no time and space. From the instant that we arrive in heaven, if you can imagine like two, what, two minutes until we reincarnate but in that two minutes of time there can be 16,000 lifetimes in that two minutes because there's no time so they arrive in heaven and before they reincarnate they can pop in to see us in 2020 they can pop back in and see us from 1980 they can go and have a hundred year old existence as a soldier in medieval times they can be born again in 2318 and live through whatever wars and battles they have up in that, you know, in 200 years' time. So, because there's no time and no space. 
So when they pop in to see me, I, I know the difference between ghosts and spirits because I've been doing this all my life. Ghosts stay earthbound. Spirits are the ones who go home. I like using the word home. Yes, I use heaven because a lot of people associate that to that word. But I've also, um, you know, as part of my upbringing, I was born into an Anglican home. Um, you know, my family were Christian, but I've studied monks. I've studied the Sikh from India. I've studied um, Buddhism. I've studied Muslim laws. I've studied all these different religions. So, um, you know, and even in um, just Christian, I've looked at the Buddha, um, the Baptists. I've looked at the Pentecostals. I've looked at the Catholics. So what I do find with all these religions, yes, they all have their own beliefs and their own philosophies and laws, but ultimately one thing in common is that they all have a hope that there is something that's home. So that's why I like using the word home. So spirits that come through, which are ones that go home, generally when they come to me, I don't see them the same as ghosts. I can see a ghost sitting in front of me exactly like you are right now. It's almost like they are biological beings sitting in front of me. A lot of time I see them also as transparent. So if you turn around and look at your reflection in a glass, I, that's how I see them a lot too. Whereas spirits, when they come to me, because they don't have any... Um, what would I say, earthly connections anymore, they come through differently. Sometimes I just hear them, but other times I do see them as a physical form. So they can come through at any age. Ghosts generally stay the same age as when they passed. My neighbour, he died three years ago, Roy, he was 85. Whenever I see him, he still appears as an 85-year-old. But when we go home, because there's no time and space there, they can come through as a baby. They can come through as an 8-year-old, 18-year-old, 38-year-old, 68-year-old, 98-year-old, 150-year-old, even if they died when they were 18, because their, their body can change to any age of that existence. Um, one thing I did what see when I was... What do you think stops ghosts from crossing? <clears throat> what do I personally? There's a lot of reasons why they yep. don't pass over. Um, first of all, I like saying a, a warning with ghosts. There's a lot of people who say, oh, just tell them to go into the white light. Please know we can't do that. And I'll explain why. There's ghosts that don't know that they've died. Generally, it's a sudden experience. So if you look at Bruce Willis in the movie The Sixth Sense, he got shot, he didn't know he died. It was only at the end when he saw his wife holding the wedding ring that he realised that he'd been killed. He didn't die. So if someone had gone up to him and said, oh man, go into the white light, he wouldn't know what they're talking about because he still thinks that he's living. Then you've got people like Roy, my neighbour. He was 85. I knew him for two years when I first moved in here and he died three years ago. He still turns on his lights at night, he still turn, um, he still cooks dinner, I can hear his pot pans and stuff moving at seven o'clock every night when he cooks dinner. His bathroom light still turns on when he has his night showers. He built that house next door. He actually was the, he, he hammered the nails in, he laid the carpets, he painted the walls. So imagine the energy that he put into that house. Energy equals connection. He's so connected to that house that he is proud of it. He is more passionate about the existence of his house than what his own destiny is. So you've got the ones that stay because they don't know they're dead, but then you've also got the ones who stay because they do know they're dead but they're more passionate looking after someone or something else than going into the white light. I had a lady come here, she brought her mother. Her mother passed about 20 years ago. 
this girl now was only 30. She said, oh, can you see if my mum's around me? And I said, your mum is with you, darling. She's walked in with you through the door. It was like two people walked in the house. So this girl was only 10 when her mother died. So her mother stayed to watch after her, to look after her like a mother would. So she's not going to the white light because she loves her daughter so much more than her own existence of going home. So if, if someone went to her, this ghost of the mother, and said, oh, there's the white light, just go into it. She's not going to go in there because she's staying to look after her daughter and make sure that she's okay. You know, I went to a house. A lady rang me and she said, oh, my God, pots are flying around the room. Um, my bed shakes at night. The TV's turning off and on constantly. And I thought, wow, I, I hope this is true. I want to see this. So I went over, and as I'm walking up the front um, front pathway, on the veranda is this old lady sitting in a chair. And I thought this was the lady who I spoke to on the phone. So I've just walked up and I said, oh, hello, good morning, how are you? I'm Linda, thank you. She stood up, what are you doing in my house? Get out of my house! And I'm, I'm thinking, wow. I've just spoken to this woman yesterday, you know, she seemed so nice and now she's attacking me. Then this other woman, this other old lady comes out, she says, oh, hi, I'm the lady you spoke to yesterday. And she said, what's going on? And I said, oh my God, this lady just attacked me, told me to get out of her house. Then she picks up this pot plant as we're like having this discussion, she picks up this pot plant and throws it at me. So I had to dodge to get away from this pot plant and the other lady that lives there now, just watching this pot plant fly through the air, can't understand why. And I said, darling, you've got to understand, this was this lady's house. She built this house with her husband. Um, so I sat there and had a nice, you know, I didn't go into the house. I just sat with her outside. I said, please understand, honey, um, this isn't your house anymore. You obviously passed at some point so this is the new lawful owner of your house. You know, she's she's going to fix it up and renovate it. No one's touching my carpet. No one's taking down my wallpaper. This is what she's telling me. Because she put all that time and effort into creating that home that she can't fathom that she's dead and now somebody else wants to renovate the house. So this poor woman in the house now, she had a big decision to make. Because this old lady that was there was not going to leave. She will not let anyone else fix up her house. Because she did it. So tell us, um, tell us one more ghost story from Ghost Exposed. Tell us about the matron. <clears throat> the matron. It was back in the 1980s. I got a flu. Okay. Um, couldn't breathe, it went into my chest, so it was borderline pneumonia. Ended up ringing a hospital and, um, sorry, ringing an ambulance. Um, I remember getting on the, the trolley, the gurney. Um, sorry, that was just my phone. Someone doesn't know that I'm doing talking to you this morning. Um, so I was very sick, called an ambulance, and... I remember even the trip in the ambulance going to hospital. It was the Redcliffe Hospital, by the way, just north of Brisbane. I went into hospital and, you know, they, they put me in this room with some other people and funny thing, they were all asleep. I was wide awake and I'm just lying there looking around and this woman walks in who's a nurse. And she's like looking around at everyone asleep and she sees that, yeah, we make eye contact and she says, oh, hello, honey, when did you come in? And I said, oh, I got here a few hours ago, you know. And she said, oh, what's wrong? You know, she's so caring. Oh, like, oh, mid-40s, 50-year-old. She said, oh, yeah, you'll be okay, you know. It's really nice. I'm the matron tonight. I'll look after you, okay. So she ends up sitting on the bed. Now, you know when someone sits on a bed, there's actually an indent from the bum sitting on the seat? She made that indent. So what she looked like, she had her hair 
like up in a bun, you know, like Princess Anne of the UK. Well, hello, you're in the UK. You'd know Princess Anne. So her hair's up in this back bun and she had like a white uniform on with a zip up the front and she had white like sand shoes with um, stockings. She had stockings on. So she sat on the bed probably, oh, she, she was telling me all these stories. Oh, yes, I've worked at this hospital for so long. You know, I like doing the night shift here because, you know, I can sit with people like yourself who are sick, you know, just give you that comfort and know everything's okay. We're going to do our best to look after you here. And I said, she said to me, oh, why don't you go down and get yourself some magazines in the morning? Now, that night, they'd actually put a cannula into my wrist, which led through the saline drip up to a bag of whatever they were giving me. And I had one of those steel, I call them like hat stands. So I had this hat stand type thing with the bag of saline going or whatever it was that they were giving me. And I made this joke to her. I said, oh, look, I can't go to the cafe because, look, I've got, I've got to take, you know, this hat stand thing with me if I walk anywhere. And she said, oh, <clears throat> it's all right. I'll, I'll tell you the shortcut. When you go out of your room, head left along the corridor and at the end there's a door. Come and see me in the morning and I'll give you the key to open it because the matron has the key to this door. She said, when you go in the door, you go down a flight of stairs, then you turn and go down another flight of stairs. So it's like down, so then you turn, you go back down. She said, be careful with the bottom step because the bottom step's actually a double step. It's long step. So people think that they're at the end and then they trip. She said, I've tripped so many times. So she was laughing. She said, you go out that door, there's a little walkway, and then you're at the cafeteria where you can buy some magazines tomorrow. You know, I, I clearly remember her back from the 80s. And it was a person sitting on the bed, just like you sitting there talking to me. So she kept looking around at the others in the room, making sure they're asleep. And, you know, at one point she actually said, oh, we've got to keep our voice down. We'll wake them all up. You know, so she, she had that um, care factor. She was so concerned about the people in the hospital. So she said, oh, look, I've got to go finish my rounds now. Um, I'll come back and see you tomorrow night. And I just thought, oh, my God, what a nice lady. You know, she's because she's so kind, she's so – it was like a loving feeling, you know, like a maternal love, you know, that she was giving me. So I went to sleep shortly after. And I woke up in the morning – um, and, and one of the nurses was coming in with her, you know, I could actually still remember the steam coming out of a coffee. It was a brand new coffee. And she comes in and she woke me up because of the noise that she's making. And she starts doing all the blood pressures and temperatures of all the other people in the room. And she comes over to me and she says, oh, how did you sleep? And I said, oh, my God, Margaret was so nice last night. What a lovely lady. You know, I really love that nurse. You know, um, she said she was going to come and see me again tonight. And she said, who? I said, you know, the matron that was on last night, on the night shift. She said, what? What did, who? She said, no, no, it was somebody else, like, uh, Vivian or somebody. They were on last night. I said, no, I didn't see that lady. I saw this other lady. She said, hang on a minute. So this nurse that just came in in the morning shift, she leaves and she's gone for about 10 minutes and she brings back this huge photo. It's probably three foot by about two foot. This, you know, she's carrying it like, <laughs> carrying it in the door. It was a really old photo and it had a really thick frame around it. So you could see it was on the wall at some point. And she says, I just had to go into the store and did you find this? Can you see this nurse in the photo? And I, uh, 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 there she is. You know, I pointed at, looked at a few, there she is there. Cause she had the hair like Princess Anne and her facial features that matched it. She said, darling, is this the lady who saw you last night? I said, yeah, she was here for like 45 minutes telling me all this stuff about the hospital. She told me about the doorway, how it goes down and you, there's a double step. She told me how to get in the cafe. She told me that she'd come and see me again. 
that I had to come and see her to get the key for that door. She says, funny thing, that door does go down a stairwell. It does have a bend in it, so you go down and turn, then go down more steps. There is a double step at the bottom. But how could you know this? Because you've got a drip in with that pole. I said, because this lady last night was telling me. She said, but darling, this lady died five years ago in a car accident. So that matron at um, Redcliffe Hospital, she still does her rounds there. I don't know if she knows that she's dead, but she's doing what she loved. Was she there because you were able to see her and because you were able to communicate and your, your openness to it didn't create her but allowed her to be there? Or would you feel she would have been there doing those rounds regardless and she just happened that night to bump into somebody like yourself who was able to see her and it was like, oh wow, actually, look, I've got a connection here. That's it right there. If I hadn't been there that night, I think she would have walked in, looked around, made sure that everyone was all right, and then she would have gone to the next room. But because I looked her in the eye, made that contact, she knew that she could come and talk to me. One thing with hospitals, Mark, what do you think it's like when I just walk into a hospital? Do you know how many ghosts are in there? I was going to say, I bet it's noisy in your head is what it is. Um, I'll explain it. I, I have one very specific um, situation that I like telling people about. One of my friends was admitted um, a few years ago with appendicitis. So I had to go and see her, obviously, after she had her operation. So I stopped at the gift shop. And I bought a bunch of flowers and I got in the elevator to go up to the third floor so I could go and visit my friend. As the elevator doors opened, now there was another guy in the elevator with me. As the doors opened, there was about 20 people standing there. Some of them had gowns on, like, you know, the hospital gowns with the opening down the back. Some had their pyjamas on, some had clothes on, some carried flowers and other gifts. Some had suitcases, but this guy that was in the elevator with me, he walked out and didn't see any of them. Only I did. So as he walked out, he actually walked through a few of them because it was so deep. Whether he got the tingles or that cobweb feeling of walking through a spirit, I don't know whether he was that tuned in, but I watched him just walk straight through them. So they looking in the elevator, like past me. Where's my relative? Where's my friend? Who's picking me up today? So I try and make contact with them, you know, look them in the eye. Um, some of them do look me in the eye. And I say, oh, are you okay? Would you like to come and have a chat? And they say, oh, no, I'm just waiting for my wife. She's picking me up later. Or, oh, no, I don't need to talk to you. I'm waiting. But they're all waiting to be picked up to take home. You know, so for whatever reasons they go into hospital, whether, you know, they just have the classic chest pain and they don't think want to think it's bad and they don't make it through the night. You know, my heart bleeds for them, Mark. They're all such very high traffic, high energy, high emotion, high trauma environment where people of all backgrounds are thrust into a, a relatively enclosed space. Absolutely. And packed with emotion, you know, be it yeah. love in a maternity ward to absolute terror and trauma and fear. And it's all in the four walls, isn't it? So Absolutely. it's not surprising yeah. that it, it stays yeah. there. Absolutely. You know, I like going into the chapels at hospitals. Um, you know, people say, oh, my God, how, how crowded are they? But they're not crowded. No one goes, like spirit world and ghosts, they don't go to the chapels because they don't believe that anything's wrong with them because now they're feeling okay. They've got no pain anymore because their physical body's no longer on them. They're thinking, oh, my God, I'm cured. I'm going home today because they feel good. 
because once we leave our body, we don't feel the pains associated to our body anymore. So, you know, they sit there thinking, oh, yeah, I'll just wait for my wife to pick me up. I think she's coming up at 2 o'clock. But because they don't understand that time, they don't think, oh, my God, I've got to go far enough. They just sit there waiting. Do you so think it loops? She... Like, like Roy next door doing his, his pots and pans in the evening? Do you think it's just yeah. a kind of a loop, a loop effect, yes. an energy loop? Yes, yes. A lot of times it is. You know, you get the ones who do, like Shelley in my book, Ghost Exposed, um, she was here for three days. She was a very intelligent, upright ghost. So I love talking about the Shelley story. Um, she told me so much stuff where she'd been for the last 30 years, looking for somebody just to take her to the hospital to see what her friends were like, even knowing that they were okay. She wasn't. She was dead. You know, she died in that car accident. So, um, you know, that's just so sad for her. You know, I said to her, where have you been? And she says, oh, my God, I went with this guy to there and I went to this person to there. And I was, you know, lived there with him for a couple of days. And, and I said, but, darling, you've got to remember this is 30 years that you've been doing this all for, you know, because there's just no, they don't fathom that time anymore. They don't see day, night, day, night to classify that as two days. They just think it's just a perpetual day you keep going for them, you know, and that's... Um, yeah, so that's why I study a lot about the dimensions and how how do they not see night, you know, because they don't see it like we do because we're three-dimensional. They're fifth or seventh dimensional um, where they come from. Um, you know, that's why not everybody sees ghosts because, you know, you've just got to be open to that dimensional plane um, where you tune into it. If there is indeed a reality, a dimension, an existence beyond that which we can see, then how would a spirit go about crossing from one side to the other? We talk about the spirit of a dead person crossing over from this world into the light in order to reach the other side, heaven or whatever else you may call it. But is the doorway an entry-only agreement? Is there a one-way sign above it? How would a spirit or a ghost, or worse, come back in the other direction? Many would agree that they cannot merely do so at will, appearing freely wherever or whenever they choose, and that there must be a terrestrial or mortal opening made for them, either intentionally or by accident. Some spaces are considered natural portals, others can be created by rituals, others by individuals or groups who possess the ability to communicate or to summon or to conjure. But the opening of a portal is a delicate procedure. Once the door opens, there's often no control over what comes through it. It would be important to always maintain a tight grip of the door handle, and the importance of closing it again should be taken very seriously indeed. I have been to bad houses where there's bad energies, bad vortexes or portals as you want to call them. Um, I can try and seal them and tell the people how to protect them so bad energies can't come through. But ultimately, I'm not the owner of that house. So who have I got the right to just walk in the front door and say, stop doing this? They're not going to listen to me. So it comes down to educating the people who have these portals, etc., in their house on how to make the rules. I often say to people, my house, my rules. I allow what comes in. Would a, would a dark energy pay attention to that, though? Have I got a story for you, Mark? Are you ready for this one? Yo, hit me. I've got a meet-up group. It's called Southside Psychics, okay? Um, I put out this meet-up one night where I said, social get-together. These two people... Um, um, RSVP'd. I'd never met them before, so I sent them a text with my address. When they turned up, this male and female, there was three of them. I saw him walk through first, she came in, and then the third one looked like Robin Hood. He had the green pointy hat on, he had a green tunic, he had long like stockings with big um, brown boots, 
He had the quiver over his shoulder full of arrows and he actually carried a bow. So I said to this pair, who's that? And they looked at me and said his name. All of a sudden I said, what is he? And they said, oh, he's a Matt Damon. I said, uh, you've just said his name in my house and you've brought him into my house. My house, my rules, he's got no permission to come in here. And they said, oh, well, while we're here, he'll come in with us. And when we leave, he'll leave with us because he's attached to us. We work with him. And I said, no way. So I went outside because there was other people here to let them know, you know, I'm inside talking to other people. And they come out and he says, oh, I've got these books on all these Ds. I'll just run to the car and get it. And I'm like, ah, I don't want this guy in my house. So he brings in this book and he shows us this. He turns to the page where this one is that he named and he looks like Robin Hood, exactly like he was standing in my lounge room. So I actually kicked them out shortly after. I said, look, I'm not into this stuff. Deology, fill in the blank in there, like Damonology, I'm not into this. I do not allow negativity into my house. You've got to leave immediately. So they left. Um, so after they left, I actually thought, oh my God, I'm getting a bit cold. I'll go down to my bedroom. I walked into my bedroom and there he was sitting on my bed. So much for them saying he's going to leave with us. So I've run out the back here and I said, guys, can you go down to my bedroom and see what's in there? I'd said nothing. They came back and they said, Linda, you've got this guy sitting there. He's got this green hat on with a green turnip and he's got a bow and arrows. I said, where is he? They said, he's sitting on your bed. We were actually standing here just up here in front of my fireplace. And we called in the archangels. We called in Raphael and Michael. Um, there were six of us standing here in front of my fireplace. The guy across from me He's looking at me with this astonished look on his face. His, his jaws dropped like, like this. And I said, what, what's going on? He said, look, look behind you. So I looked to my left and all I saw was this white wing. Now, it wasn't small. It was massive, huge. It was coming down around my left side. Then I look to my right and I've got this other white wing coming down my right side, like surrounding me. So then I've turned and it disappeared, but it didn't disappear because on the ground were two feathers that were like four foot long. Did we try and touch them and pick them up? No way. I would never touch angel feathers because that's what they were because I'd seen the wings. They'd done a battle with whatever was in my house. And they, you know, you look at the movie Michael with John Travolta, every time he did something good, he lost feathers. I always thought that was just made up stuff for the movies. But once now that I've seen it, I know it's a reality. So there's other people out there who know this happens. When feathers, when, when they, when archangels do good things, they lose feathers. And then they have to go off and, and recoup that's them. That's an interesting fact, because not only have you seen it, but what you just briefly said then, whoever wrote that into the film, either first-hand or second-hand or third-hand, has an experience uh, of which yes. to base... Yes. You know, I look at the, the books by Stephen King. Now, how does he know all these psychic abilities unless he doesn't do it himself? You know, he's, he's, I, I, I actually say he's the biggest magician on the planet because he doesn't say he's a psychic, but he writes it into his book with such detail and authenticity because, you know, you look at the movie Kerry, moving things with our mind, telekinesis, unless he'd actually experienced that because I've experienced telekinesis where I can move stuff, um, you don't know how it feels, how to generate that energy. You know, you look at the movie Christine by Stephen King also, um, you know, energy connectivity. Unless you knew, you'd never be able to write that into a book. 
It's the biggest trick ever. How to be a psychic without telling people that you're a psychic. Yeah, so have I seen angels? I yeah. Say, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> it is just gone 1.30 in the morning here. Oh my um, gosh. Thank you we'll so much. We'll talk again, darling. We will. Thank you so much for coming and, and taking time to, to tell yeah. us all your fascinating stories. I feel like we just well, scratched the surface. Thanks oh, well, for taking Thank time. you so much. I'm going to send you all the happy thoughts so you go to sleep. Keep that child, yeah, keep the children asleep. Let them sleep until seven o'clock. Wouldn't that be um, great? Yeah, Wouldn't that be great? If you have any yeah. power to control my kids' sleep, just get them to lie in. <laughs> Here Beyond the Veil has been written and presented by myself, Mark Watson. Music and soundtracks are credited and licensed to Purple Planet and to Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. All rights are reserved by our parent company, MLW Publishing. You can follow us at facebook.com forward slash Veil or on Twitter at peerbeyondtheveil or at peerbeyond2020. Please click the like and subscribe buttons when you see them, most importantly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps us to attract the attention we need to keep the show going, to get the guests that you all want to hear from, and to help more and more people peer beyond the veil. Thank you.